welcome all to our third episode of this special three-part horizon scanning series from the public law team at Herbert Smith Freehills. My name is Shamim Ahmad. I'm a public law associate in our London office and I am joined by Nusrit Zah, a public law partner at Herbert Smith Freehills. We're delighted to have with us today James McBride, a partner from Hanbury Strategy. Hanbury is a strategic advisory firm that provides political insights and analysis and James leads Hanbury's work to provide that political and policy insight, advising businesses across a range of industries. Together, we are doing a series looking to the horizon and considering the political and legal landscape we can expect post-COVID and post-Brexit, as well as picking up the post-general election agenda. Today, we will be considering the post-general election agenda. Let's dive in. James, I think you will agree that the general election feels like it was quite a long time ago. How would you summarise the priorities of the Johnson government now? Yes, it certainly does feel like a long time ago. I think the key priority for the new government, and I still think it is fair to call it a new government, is a pretty dramatic change in the UK's political economy. Uh, A particularly large change, actually, in the context of traditional conservative political economy. So if we look back at the Conservative Manifesto of last year, in essence, it promised a much more interventionist state, a much bigger state, and a state that spends a lot more. This was at the heart of the so-called levelling up agenda. And in order to keep those so-called red wall seats at the next general election, by the way, keeping those against a much better opponent in the form of Keir Starmer, the government knows that they've got to deliver. But that's a fairly obvious point. Yes, they've got to deliver on what they promised. Um, But actually what's unclear at this stage is what delivering actually means. Is it really enough to just spend a bit more, build a few more things and move a couple of government departments up to the north of England? Is this what the so-called red wall or now blue wall voters actually wanted? Um, You know, we're walking into a a brand new shiny GP surgery, uh, despite not having very much money in your pocket, uh, and despite your wife or husband still being unemployed post-COVID. Is that enough? Or will people actually want more? Um, And if they do, the Tories, I think, will need a much more sophisticated and much more comprehensive political economy than simply spend, spend, spend. Um, And so in in a nutshell, at the next general election, Will we still be talking about austerity or will actually the debate have moved on from the 2017 and 2019 general elections? Um, I suspect the answer to that question is yes, we will have moved on. You know, an anti-austerity pro-public service argument won't be enough. Um, I'm not claiming to know what the next general election will be fought on, but I'm pretty confident it won't be just about austerity. And if I'm right, And if ultimately the government agrees, um, we will need to see much, much more from them, uh, more than just spend, spend, spend. That's really interesting. So how do you see government picking up its agenda now? Well, the first thing to say, I think, is that we shouldn't expect anything immediately. So we've got the July statement um, coming tomorrow. and there we'll, like, we'll likely see a lot of targeted support for vulnerable sectors like hospitality and, and leisure. 
as well as support for employment and retraining. But what I don't think we'll see tomorrow is a grand plan for the future. And to be fair, this is to be expected. We are still in the midst of this crisis um, and tomorrow will be a statement rather than a budget. And you know, therefore the room for maneuver is limited. I think we'll have to wait until the autumn at the very earliest for anything in the way of a, of a big grand plan from the government. And in the autumn, there will be an opportunity for that because we will, uh, we will get a budget. We'll also get the comprehensive spending review and we will get in the form of the local recovery bill and a planning bill, new pieces of legislation. Um, and of course, going into the autumn, we'll be fast approaching the point at which we'll be entering the post-Brexit world and the post-COVID world. And we now need to start thinking about those two things within the context of the post-general election world. So you mentioned the grand plan. What do you think the government's grand plan is? Uh, well, truth be told, I don't think they have one. Um, and as I say, to be fair, the government has been firefighting for the last four months or so, and so perhaps this is to be expected. Um, but as I say, I don't think the next general election will be fought on an anti-austerity agenda alone. And I don't think promising more spending alone will be sufficient. And so the Conservative Party will need to come up with a much more ambitious, much more comprehensive political economy. Can we um, consider the challenges faced by government in delivering on their commitments, taking, for example, infrastructure by way of illustration? Yeah, so look, I think the, the most obvious point here, um, but it's one that's worth making, is that it's very difficult to actually get the money out of the door and to deliver on infrastructure projects. Uh, you just need to speak to any former chancellor or any former senior official at the Treasury, and they will tell you, much to their frustration, that it's extremely difficult to deliver on big capital projects. And that's why we tend to get announced and re-announced numerous times at the dispatch box, uh, capital project after capital project. And it isn't just a you know, cynical political ploy uh, to be seen to be doing more. It is actually being re-announced because the projects have simply not been delivered. Um, and in the past, we've seen numerous attempts to solve this. So we've had the Infrastructure Commission, we've had the major projects authority, and now under this government, we've got the so-called Project Speed, which is designed to streamline the delivery of these infrastructure projects. And the Prime Minister has used an example in the past, which I think is a pretty good example of house building to illustrate this point. So if we look at 2018, uh, the UK built only 2.25 homes per thousand people. So in contrast, Germany managed 3.6, the Netherlands 3.8 and France 6.8. That's a really good point. And so what do you think government has to change to meet those challenges? Well, the government has promised to bring forward, in their words, the most radical reforms to the UK's planning system uh, since the end of the, the Second World War. Um, and we will see the start of this, I think, this autumn, when the government brings forward their new planning bill. Um, and this, this bill will do, will do a number of things, including making it easier to convert um, properties on high streets into homes. So this is, you know, converting premises like offices, cafes or shops 
into homes without needing planning permission or local authority approval. So previously, uh, such permissions known as, you know, permitted development rights had been restricted to the conversion of office buildings to homes. This will be now a much wider uh, criteria. The second thing I think we'll see is the freeing up of land. Um, so I think we'll see plans to make it far easier to convert existing commercial buildings on brownfield sites into residential ones. Um, and third, prior to the, the spending review last year, the government said it would bring forward and carry out an audit of its own land um, and where possible make better use of it. So again, we could see the government selling off land to developers to um, increase housing stock. And I suppose fourth and finally, uh, you know, adding extra stories. Uh, so by that, I mean, allowing freeholders to add one or two stories on top of existing blocks of flats. And I'm sure there's, you know, much, much more. Um, I'm certainly no planning expert, um, but it promises, at least on the basis of the government's rhetoric, to have some pretty significant changes to the planning rules to allow much more building. Thanks, James. That's all really interesting insight. Nusrit, do you have any comments on the types of disputes or court challenges we might see coming up following the levelling up by government? Yes, and picking up on James's point about infrastructure, the government's no stranger to court challenges regarding big infrastructure projects in the past few years. Uh, good examples are High Speed 2 and the Heathrow Third Runway expansion, which have both been targeted by claimants. When the government considers any future infrastructure projects, it will no doubt be alive to the fact that there are numerous stakeholders in any given project, and so the likelihood of one of those stakeholders not being satisfied with the proposed changes and the delivery is really pretty high. Do you have any high-level observations from those recent infrastructure-related cases? I think environmental issues are fast becoming an area which courts are being asked to adjudicate on. We've seen claimants trying to use the Climate Change Act and the Paris Agreement to encourage the courts to hold the government to account on its commitment to bring all greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2050. But dicta from the court so far suggests that they're reluctant to get involved in these really quite politicised areas. Client Earth brought a challenge recently against the government for granting an application by Drax Power Limited for a development consent order for the construction and operation of two gas-fired generating units at the existing Drax Power Station in Yorkshire. And one limb of their challenge had been on the basis of the climate change targets but the court dismissed the claim and noted the balance to be struck between environmental and health interests on the one hand, and on the other hand, the need for security and diversity of energy supply and support for the transition to a low carbon economy. The court there concluded that policymaking in this area is carried on at a high strategic level, and that involves political judgment as to what's in the public interest. I think this deferential approach taken by the court in this case does reflect the really well-established purpose and role of judicial review in this country, which is to ensure that the executive is held to account by the courts in its decision-making without the courts straying into the sphere of policy-making and politics. The hurdle, therefore, is set quite high for claimants when they are bringing challenges based on the potential impact on the environment. Yeah, I think that's right.
And the environment is an interesting area to bring up as there are a couple of bills going through Parliament. Um, They were going through Parliament before COVID hit and government is likely to pick those up again now that it's turning back to its post-general election legislative agenda. Yes, um, and we have the Environment Bill. Um, Most of the UK's environmental law and policy derives from the EU and EU structures and processes provide for oversight and enforcement. So part of the purpose of this bill is to set out measures needed to ensure that there isn't an environmental governance gap on withdrawal from the EU. Interestingly, the government policy statement explains that leaving the EU gives the UK the autonomy and ability to set our own future environmental protections. So although part of the purpose of the bill is to assist the UK in its transition from the EU, this possibility of divergence post-Brexit is envisaged by the government. That's really interesting. And there's the Clean Air Human Rights Bill. Yes, and what that bill will do will establish the right to breathe clean air and the Human Rights Act will be read as though this were a convention right. It will also enhance the powers, duties and functions of various bodies, including local authorities, to meet this objective. So there's a lot of movement on that front, which will inevitably impact litigants' options here. Thank you, Nissa and James. And that brings us to the end of our time for today's podcast and the end of this three-part series. The first two episodes are on post-COVID world and the post-Brexit world. If you haven't listened to those episodes, do check them out. For more information, feel free to be in touch and keep an eye on our Public Law Notes blog and the firm's COVID-19 material. For more information, feel free to be in touch and keep an eye out for our Public Law Notes blog and the firm's COVID-19 material. Thank you all for listening. This was Shamim Ahmad talking with Nusrat Zah, who co-leads Herbert Smith Freehills Public Law Practice in London, and our guest, James McBride, a partner from Hanbury Strategy. Take care, all.